This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is being accountable for our life choices. In the first half, Sharon G. Samuelson shares her address, The Books of Our Lives. Then in the second half, Lynn G. Robbins speaks on Be 100% Responsible. There are many aspects of gaining a valuable education, and one of these is having your head in books, books, and books a great deal of the time. Perhaps most of these books at this stage of your life are textbooks assigned to you by your professors. However, I do hope that you have the opportunity and desire for some recreational reading also. I have loved books and received joy from reading them as long as I can remember. I recall my parents reading to me as a young child as well as taking me to the library and thus giving me the opportunity to leave with an armload of books to read as fast and as often as I wanted. When I went to bed at night, I always took a trusted companion with me, which I had hidden in my bedroom, a flashlight. When it would get late into the evening and I was still reading, my parents would say, Lights out, it's time to go to sleep. But since I had my flashlight, I could get under the covers or go into the closet. Therefore, they couldn't see the light under my bedroom door and I could keep on reading. I had some very favorite books as a teenager. I have read them several times, and I can still identify these stories by hearing the first sentence or two of the narrative. Here are examples of three of them. Christmas won't be Christmas without any presents, grumbled Joe, lying on the rug. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I have just returned from a visit to my landlord, the solitary neighbor I should be troubled with. You may have been able to identify these books as Little Women, A Tale of Two Cities, and Wuthering Heights. Upon hearing or seeing one or two sentences which introduce a book I have so enjoyed reading, the plot, characters, locale, message, and emotions I felt while reading that novel are vividly recalled. I believe that a book is like a life. It has a beginning and a conclusion, as does our earthly existence. Some books are lengthy and some are short. Most are comprised of several chapters. Each chapter adds upon the previous one with more knowledge and experience. Some chapters are filled with the joy and success of life. However, there are also ones with sadness, challenge, and tragedy. Each one of us here is writing the book of his or her life. And reading, learning, loving, serving, and worshiping are integral parts of the process. William A. Wilson once stated, If a book or a story or any other text is like a little life, and if our reading actually uses up precious time in that other story we think of as our lives, then we should make the most of our reading, just as we should make the most of our lives. Reading reminds us that every text ends with a blank page and that what we get from every text is precisely balanced by what we give. Our skill, our learning, and our commitment to the text will determine for each of us the kind of experience that text provides. Learning to read is not just a matter of acquiring information from texts. It is a matter of learning to read and write the texts of our lives. If one sentence can cause me to recall a book and what it meant to me, I might ask, 
What one sentence would I want to summarize my life story and thus cause others to remember me and the life I led? How do you want to be remembered and described by those who knew you during your sojourn here on earth? Upon my reading the following short descriptions of four men and women, I believe that you could identify them by one or two sentences. For example, He has done more, save Jesus only, for the salvation of men in this world than any other man that ever lived in it. Of course, this is a description of the Prophet Joseph Smith by John Taylor following the Prophet's martyrdom. Another description is, If all men had been and were and ever would be like unto him, behold, the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever. Yea, the devil would never have power over the hearts of the children of men. This is a description found in the Book of Mormon of Captain Moroni as he prepared to lead his people in defending their country and religion. One sentence each, and we are told the character and stature of these men. Here are two descriptions of women we honor, as described by Bruce R. McConkie. She, as the mother of all living, set the pattern for all future mothers with reference to bringing up their children in light and truth. And she is one of the greatest women who has ever lived on earth. The spirit daughter of God our Father, she was chosen to provide a body for his son. Of course, these sentences describe Eve and Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ. Another statement, which is a beautiful summation of a woman's life, was made by her son. Blessed is my mother, for her soul is ever filled with benevolence and philanthropy. And notwithstanding her age, she shall yet receive strength and be comforted in the midst of her house. Thus saith the Lord, she shall have eternal life. What a wonderful tribute paid to his mother, Lucy Mack Smith, by her son, the prophet Joseph Smith. We know that she played a significant and vital role in his development and his life. As our lives are unfolding today, we have completed several chapters on our moving forward with anticipation to those which lie ahead. You are in an exciting and very important chapter at the present time. What occurs here will so determine and define future chapters, just as preceding ones brought you here to Brigham Young University. Why exactly your book is being written at this time in the latter days, we do not know, but prophets and church leaders have stated that you have been saved to come at this time and in this dispensation. President Ezra Taft Benson delivered this message to the students of the University in 1980, and it is also applicable to you. He stated, For nearly 6,000 years, God has held you in reserve to make your appearance in the final days before the second coming of the Lord. Every previous gospel dispensation has drifted into apostasy, but ours will not. God has saved for the final inning some of his strongest children who will help bear off the kingdom triumphantly. Make no mistake about it, you are a marked generation. There has never been more expected of the faithful in such a short period of time as there is of us. Never before on this space of this earth have the forces of evil and the forces of good been as well organized. Each day we personally make many decisions that show where our support will go. The final outcome is certain. The forces of righteousness will finally win. 
What remains to be seen is where each of us personally, now and in the future, will stand in this fight. And how tall will we stand? Will we be true to our last days, our foreordained mission? How privileged you are to be writing your lives right now. However, with that privilege, there is a responsibility to be living in accordance with the teachings of Jesus Christ. Each one of us is valuable in the sight of God. The scriptures tell us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In your book of life, each of you has so much to offer. As each of us writes his or her book, hopefully we strive to become the man or woman we want to be as the last chapter closes on our life. In our present, our past, and future, we did not nor do not have control over many occurrences and circumstances which come therein. But we do have our agency to choose which of the many available paths and doors to take. J. M. Barry wrote, The life of every man is a diary in which he means to write one story and writes another, and his humblest hour is when he compares the volume as it is with what he vowed to make it. We are accountable for our actions and choices and have a personal accountability to the Savior for them. As we write the text of our lives and the sentence which describes it, we have an eternal perspective. How blessed we are to have the guidance of a prophet of the Lord, President Gordon B. Hinckley, as well as the loving Father in Heaven and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we reflect their teachings and love by always standing tall as we go forth to serve in every chapter of our lives, would be my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is being accountable for our life choices. We've just heard from Sharon G. Samuelson. After the break, we'll return with Lynn G. Robbins for Be 100% Responsible. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is being accountable for our life choices. Next is Lynn G. Robbins, member of the Presidency of the Seventy of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the time of this address, titled, Be 100% Responsible. Brothers and sisters, I am grateful to be with you in this opening session of the 2017 BYU Education Week. This year's theme comes from Doctrine and Covenants 50:24, with special emphasis on these words, And he that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light. I'm going to take a different approach on this theme than might be expected by exposing and illustrating some very cunning and effective ways that the wicked one prevents people from progressing and receiving more light. Many gospel principles come in pairs, meaning one is incomplete without the other. I want to refer to three of these doctrinal pairs today. The first, agency and responsibility, mercy and justice, and faith and works. When Satan is successful in dividing doctrinal pairs, he begins to wreak havoc upon mankind. It is one of his most cunning strategies 
to keep people from growing in the light. You already know that faith without works really isn't faith. My primary focus will be on the other two doctrinal pairs. First, to illustrate how avoiding responsibility affects agency, and second, how denying justice, as it is referred in the Book of Mormon, affects mercy. The Book of Mormon teaches us that we are agents to act and not be acted upon, or to be free to act for ourselves. This freedom of choice was not a gift of partial agency, but complete and total 100% agency. It was absolute in the sense that the one perfect parent never forces his children. He shows us the way and may even command us, but nevertheless thou mayest choose for thyself, for it is given unto thee. Assuming responsibility and being accountable for our choices are agency's complementary principles. Responsibility is to recognize ourselves as being the cause for the effects or the results of our choices, good or bad. On the negative side, it is to always own up to the consequences of poor choices. Except for those held innocent, such as little children and the intellectually disabled, gospel doctrine teaches us that each person is responsible for the use of their agency and will be punished for their own sins. It isn't just a heavenly principle, but a law of nature. We reap what we sow. Logically, then, complete and total agency comes with complete and total responsibility. And now remember, remember, my brethren, that whosoever perisheth, perisheth unto himself, and whosoever doeth iniquity, doeth it unto himself. For behold, ye are free, ye are permitted to act for yourselves. For behold, God hath given unto you a knowledge, and he hath made you free. One of Satan's most crafty strategies to gain control of our agency isn't a frontal attack on our agency, but a sneaky backdoor assault on responsibility. Without responsibility, every good gift from God could be misused for evil purposes. Freedom, for example, of speech without responsibility can be used to create and protect pornography. The rights of a woman can be twisted to justify an unnecessary abortion. When the world separates choice from accountability, it leads to anarchy and a war of wills or survival of the fittest. We could call agency without responsibility the Korahor principle, as we read in the Book of Alma, that every man conquered according to his strength, and whatsoever a man did was no crime. With negative consequences removed, you now have agency unbridled, as if there were no day of reckoning. If Satan is not successful in fully separating agency from responsibility, one of his backup schemes is to dull or minimize feelings of responsibility, what we could call the Nehor principle, also found in the Book of Alma, that all mankind should be saved at the last day, and that they need not fear nor tremble, for the Lord had created all men, and had also redeemed all men, and in the end all men should have eternal life. What an attractive offer for those who seek happiness in wickedness. The Nehor principle depends entirely on mercy and denies justice, or a separation of the second doctrinal pair aforementioned. 
Denying justice is a twin of avoiding responsibility. They are essentially the same thing. A common strategy of each Book of Mormon Antichrist was to separate agency from responsibility. Eat, drink, and be merry. Nevertheless, fear God, he will justify in committing a little sin. Faith without works, mercy without justice, agency without responsibility are all different verses of the same seductive and damning song. With each, the natural man rejects accountability in his attempt to sedate his conscience. It is similar to the early 16th century practice of paying for indulgences, but much easier. This way it is free. No wonder the broad path is filled with so many. It parades a guilt-free journey to salvation, but is in reality a cleverly disguised detour to destruction. Agency without responsibility is one of the foremost Antichrist doctrines, very cunning in its nature and very destructive in its results. To illustrate, I want to share a list of things that Satan tempts people to either say or do to avoid being responsible. This list isn't all-inclusive, but I believe it covers the most common tactics. I begin with blaming others, such as when Saul disobediently took of the spoils of war from the Amalekites and then, when confronted by Samuel, blamed the people. Number two, Saul then rationalized or justified his disobedience, stating that the saved livestock was to sacrifice to the Lord. Third on the list are excuses which come in a thousand varieties, such as this one from Laman and Lemuel. How is it possible that the Lord will deliver Laban into our hands? Behold, he is a mighty man, and he can command fifty, yea, even he can slay fifty. Then why not us? Next is to minimize or trivialize sin, which is exactly what Nehor advocated. To hide is a common avoidance technique, a tactic Satan used with Adam and Eve after they partook of the forbidden fruit. Closely associated with hide is to cover up, which David attempted to do to conceal his affair with Bathsheba. Next is to flee from responsibility, something that Jonah tried to do. To abandon responsibility is similar, such as when Corianton forsook his ministry in pursuit of the harlot Isabel. Next on the list is to deny or lie. And Saul said, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears? To rebel, the next one, Samuel then rebukes Saul. For rebellion and because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. One who rebels also complains and murmurs. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and said, Would God that we had died in Egypt? Find fault and get angry are closely associated. And it came to pass that Laman was angry with me and also with my father and also was Lemuel. That leads to making demands and entitlements. We will not that our younger brother shall be ruler over us. And it came to pass that Laman and Lemuel did take me and bind me with cords, and they did treat me with much harshness. 
Next is to begin doubting, losing hope, giving up, and quitting. Our brother is a fool, for they did not believe that I could build a ship. Self-pity and the victim mentality are very common. Behold, these many years we have suffered in the wilderness, which time we might have enjoyed our possessions in the land of our inheritance. Yea, and we might have been happy. Next is indecision or being in a spiritual stupor. The irony with indecision is if you don't make decisions in time, time will make the decision for you. And a twin of indecision is to procrastinate. But behold, your days of probation are past. Ye have procrastinated the day of your salvation until it is everlastingly too late. Fear is one related to hide. And I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent in the earth. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant. And the final one that I'm going to uh, mention here is to enable. We're helping others to avoid responsibility, such as when Eli failed to discipline his sons for their grievous sins and was rebuked by the Lord. Wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice, and honorest thy sons above me. Now, when you consider this list that I've just gone through, with Laman and Lemuel in mind, they were guilty of nearly everything on that list. It is this list that destroyed Laman and Lemuel. It is an extremely dangerous list. When reading First and Second Nephi, we can only try to imagine how difficult it was for the members of Lehi's family to leave their home, to obtain the brass plates, to camp out for eight years in the wilderness and to build a large ocean-going vessel. The responsibility that faced the family was indeed formidable. Yet, as difficult as a responsibility may be, difficulty is the one excuse that history never accepts, as so graphically illustrated in the case of Laman and Lemuel. Difficult situations are the test of one's faith to see if we will go forward with either a believing heart or a doubting heart, if at all. A difficult situation reveals a person's character and either strengthens it, as with Nephi, or corrupts it, as with Laman and Lemuel, who epitomized what it meant to be irresponsible. It is important to recognize that excuses never equal results. In the case of Laman and Lemuel, all of the excuses in the world could never get those plates. The reason Nephi obtained the plates and Laman and Lemuel didn't is because Nephi never went to the anti-responsibility list. He was a champion, and champions do not turn to that list. As Elder David B. Haight of the Quorum of the Twelve stated, a determined man finds a way. The other man finds an excuse. If the anti-responsibility list is so dangerous, why do so many people frequently turn to it? It is because the natural man is irresponsible by nature. He goes to the list as a defense mechanism to avoid shame and embarrassment, stress and anxiety, and the pain and negative consequences of mistakes and sin. Rather than repent to eliminate guilt, he sedates it with excuses. It gives him this false sense that his environment or someone else is to blame, and therefore he has no need to repent. The anti-responsibility list could also be called the anti-faith list, because it halts progress dead in its tracks. When Satan tempts a person to avoid responsibility, they subtly 
surrender their agency because the person is no longer in control or acting. Rather, they become objects who are being acted upon, and Satan cleverly begins to control their life. It is important to note that everyone occasionally fails in their attempts at success, just as Nephi did with his brothers in their first two trips to Jerusalem trying to obtain the plates. But the valiant accept responsibility for their mistakes and sins. They repent, get back on their feet, and continue moving forward in faith. They may give an explanation or a reason for their lack of success, but not an excuse. At first glance, it may appear that Adam was blaming Eve when he said, The woman thou gavest me. However, when Adam subsequently adds, And I did eat, we are given to understand that he accepted responsibility for his actions and was giving an explanation, not blaming Eve. And Eve in turn also said, And I did eat. Turning to the anti-responsibility list is an act of self-betrayal. It is to give up on oneself and sometimes others. As I share the following stories, I hope you will observe how going to the anti-responsibility list is counterproductive, even if you are right. Story number one, the distribution center. In 1983, a few partners and I started a new company which taught time management seminars and created and sold day planners. For corporate seminars, we sent our consultants to the client's headquarters where they taught at the corporate training facilities. Prior to the seminar, two employees in our distribution center would prepare and ship several boxes of training materials such as the day planner, binders, and forms. Also included was a participant seminar guidebook of around 100 pages with quotes, fill-in-the-blanks, graphs, illustrations. The two distribution center employees would normally send the seminar shipment about 10 days before the seminar. At the time the following incident occurred, we were teaching around 250 seminars each month. With so many seminar shipments, these two employees would often commit errors, such as not shipping sufficient quantities or omitting certain materials, or not shipping on time. This became an irritating and often embarrassing frustration for the consultants. When these problems occurred, the seminar division would file a complaint with me, as the distribution center was one of my responsibilities. When I spoke to these two employees about errors and system improvements, they never wanted to accept responsibility for the errors. They would blame others, like saying, it's not our fault. The seminar division filled out the seminar supplies request form incorrectly, and we sent the shipment exactly according to their specifications. It's their fault. You can't blame us. Or they might say, we shipped it on time, but the freight company delivered it late. You can't blame us. Or another excuse was the binder subsidiary packaged the individual seminar kits with errors, and we shipped the kits as they were given to us. It's their fault. It seemed these two employees were never responsible for the errors, and so the errors continued. Then something critical happened. The director of training for a large multinational corporation attended one of our seminars and was so thrilled with it that she invited us to teach a pilot seminar to its 50 or so top executives. On the day of the seminar, our consultant arrived and opened the boxes of materials and discovered that the seminar guidebooks were missing. 
Without the seminar guidebook, how would the participants follow along and take notes? Their training director was panic-stricken. Our consultant did the best he could by making sure each participant was given a pad of paper on which to take notes throughout the day, and the seminar turned out reasonably well even without the guidebook. Extremely embarrassed and angry, their training director called our seminar division and said, You will never teach here again. How could you have made such an embarrassing and inexcusable error with our pilot seminar? An upset senior vice president of our seminar division called me and said, This is the last straw. We're about to lose a million-dollar account because of the distribution center's errors. We simply can't tolerate any more errors. And as one of the owners of the company, I couldn't tolerate such errors either. But at the same time, I did not want to see these two breadwinners fired. After pondering possible solutions, I decided to implement an incentive system to motivate these two men to be more careful. For each seminar shipped correctly, they would receive one additional dollar or a possibility of an extra $250 each month, hopefully enough to focus their attention on quality. However, if they made one error, a $1 penalty wasn't much of a loss. I therefore decided to also include two $100 bonuses for no errors. With the first error, they not only lost $1, but the first $100 bonus. If they made a second error, they lost the second $100 bonus. I also told them, if there is an error, you will lose your bonus, regardless of where that error originates. You are 100% responsible for that shipment. Well, that's not fair, they responded. What happens if the seminar division fills out a seminar supply request form incorrectly and not knowing we send the shipment with their errors? I said, you will lose your bonus. You are 100% responsible for that shipment's success. Well, that's not fair. What happens if we send the shipment on time, but the freight company delivers it late? I said, you will lose your bonus. You are 100% responsible. That's not fair. What happens if the binder division commits errors in prepackaging the individual seminar kits? You can't blame us for their mistakes. You will lose your bonus, I once again responded. You are 100% responsible for that shipment's success. Do you understand? That isn't fair. Well, it may not seem fair, but that's life. You will lose your bonus. What I did was to eliminate the anti-responsibility list as an option for them. They now understood that they could no longer blame, make excuses, or justify errors even when they were right and it was someone else's fault. What happened next was fascinating to observe. When they would receive an order from the seminar division, they would call the seminar division up to review the form with them item by item. They took responsibility for correcting any errors committed by the seminar division. They began to read the freight company's documents to make sure the correct delivery date was entered. They began to mark the cardboard shipping boxes, one of seven, two of seven, etc., with the box contents written on the outside of the box. They began sending the shipment three or four days earlier than their previous routine. A few days before the seminar, they would call the client company to verify receipt of the shipment and the contents. If they somehow omitted any materials, they had three or four extra days now to send missing items by express shipment. Errors finally stopped. 
and they began to earn their bonus month after month. It was a life-changing experience for them to learn firsthand the power, control, and reward of being 100% responsible. What these two employees learned is that when they blamed someone else, they were surrendering control of the shipment's success to others—the seminar division or the freight company, etc. They learned that excuses keep you from taking control of your life. They learned that it is self-defeating to blame, make excuses, or justify mistakes, even when you are right. The moment you do any of these self-defeating things, you lose control over the positive outcomes you are seeking in life. Story number two, putting my marriage before my pride. I quote, Like any couple, my husband and I have had disagreements during our marriage. But one incident stands out in my mind. I no longer recall the reason for our disagreement, but we ended up not speaking at all. And I remember feeling that it was all my husband's fault. I felt I had done absolutely nothing for which I needed to apologize. As the day went by, I waited for my husband to say he was sorry. Surely he could see how wrong he was. It must be obvious how much he had hurt my feelings. I felt I had to stand up for myself. It was the principle that mattered. As the day was drawing to a close, I started to realize that I was waiting in vain. So I went to the Lord in prayer. I prayed that my husband would realize what he had done (laughs) and how it was hurting our marriage. I prayed that he would be inspired to apologize so we could end our disagreement. As I was praying, I felt a strong impression that I should go to my husband and apologize to him. I was a bit shocked by this impression and immediately pointed out in my prayer that I had done nothing wrong and therefore should not have to say I was sorry. A thought came strongly to my mind, do you want to be right or do you want to be married? As I considered this question, I realized that I could hold on to my pride and not give in until he apologized, but how long would that take? Days? I was miserable while we weren't speaking to each other. I understood that while this incident itself wouldn't be the end of our marriage, if I were always unyielding, that might cause serious damage over the years. I decided it was more important to have a happy, loving marriage than to keep my pride intact over something that would later seem trivial. I went to my husband and apologized for upsetting him. He also apologized to me, and soon we were happy and united again in love. Since that time, there have been occasions when I have needed to ask myself that question again. Do you want to be right, or do you want to be married? How grateful I am for the great lesson I learned the first time I faced that question. It has always helped me realign my perspective and put my husband and my marriage before my own pride. Now, in this story, the sister learned that even if she may have been right and it was her husband's fault, blaming him was counterproductive, causing her to lose control over positive outcomes. She also discovered there is power and control in the expression, I'm sorry, when it is used with love unfeigned, empathy, and not merely to excuse ourselves. In a marriage, a 50% attitude on both parts 
may seem logical, but only a 100% attitude on both parts closes the door to the anti-responsibility list. A final lesson this sister learned is that you cannot control the agency of another person, only your own. A loving mother once gave the following wise counsel to her daughter who was unhappy with a struggling marriage. She had the daughter draw a vertical line down the middle of a sheet of paper and write down on the left side all the things that her husband did that bothered her. Then on the right side, she had her write down her response to each offense. The mother then had her cut the paper in half, separating the two lists. Now throw the paper with your husband's faults in the garbage. If you want to be happy and improve your marriage, stop focusing on your husband's faults and focus instead on your own behavior. Examine the way you are responding to the things that bother you and see if you can respond in a different, more positive way. This mother understood the power and wisdom of 100% responsibility. And of course, the Savior was the most responsible person in the history of the world. His is the greatest example. Even in his moments of excruciating pain and anguish, he showed no self-pity, one of the dysfunctional items on the list. He was always thinking outward with his ever-selfless care and concern for others, restoring a soldier's ear in Gethsemane, and later on the cross praying for those who despitefully used him in fulfillment of his own commandment to do so. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The more we are like Jesus Christ, the less likely we are to judge unrighteously, to give up on someone, or to quit a worthy cause. Even though we may sometimes give up on ourselves, the Savior never gives up on us because He is perfect in His long-suffering. Notwithstanding their sins, my bowels are filled with compassion towards them. He did not come to find fault, criticize, or blame. He came to build up, to edify, and to save. However, His compassion doesn't nullify His expectation that we be fully responsible and never try to minimize or justify sin. For I, the Lord, cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. If the Lord cannot look upon sin, even in the least degree of allowance, what law of the gospel demands complete and full responsibility for sin? That would be the law of justice. What? Do ye suppose that mercy can rob justice? I say unto you, nay, not one whit. If so, God would cease to be God. Well, not in the least degree and not one whit are other ways of saying that God holds His children 100% responsible for the use of their agency. The danger of the anti-responsibility list consists in the fact that it blinds its victims to the need for repentance. Laman and Lemuel, for example, didn't see a need to repent because it was all Nephi's fault. If it's not my fault, why should I repent? The one blinded can't even take the first step in the repentance process, which is to recognize the need for repentance. Alma understood very well how excuses keep us from repenting, as we discover in this verse where he counsels his wayward son, Corianton. What do ye suppose that mercy can rob justice? I say unto you, nay, not one whit. If so, God would cease to be God. O oh, my son, I desire that ye should deny the justice of God no more. 
Do not endeavor to excuse yourself in the least point because of your sins by denying the justice of God. But do you let the justice of God and His mercy and His long-suffering have full sway in your heart and let it bring you down to the dust in humility? As we learn from this verse, those who use excuses are denying justice, the Nehor principle, and believe that the law of justice doesn't apply to them. Alma is pleading with his son, do not go to that list. Do not endeavor to excuse yourself in the least point. He was teaching his son to be 100% responsible. To deny God's justice or to say we are not accountable for sin is to also deny his justification in the forgiveness of that sin. The Lord surely should come to redeem his people, but that he should not come to redeem them in their sins, but to redeem them from their sins. Satan successfully divides the complementary principles of mercy and justice when a person succumbs to the temptation to deny the Lord's justice. Denying the Lord's justice comes in at least two forms. The first, which I've already mentioned, is to deny the law of justice in regards to one's own sins, something both Korhor and Nehor advocated. A second and equally damaging denial is not trusting in the Lord's justice or His wisdom in dealing with the injustices of others perpetrated against us. In the masterfully written classic, The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas, Edmond Dantes, the protagonist, is an honest and loving man who turns bitter and vengeful after three covetous men bear false witness against him and frame him in a treasonous plot. When a corrupt public prosecutor becomes complicit, Dantes is arrested on the very day he is to be married to his beautiful fiancée, Mercedes. At age 19, he is given a life sentence in the infamous island prison of the Chateau d'If for a crime he did not commit. After many years of torturous, torturous years in solitary confinement, he finally meets another prisoner, the elderly Abbe Faria, who in his search for freedom has miscalculated and tunneled his way to Dante's cell rather than to an outside wall and freedom. With the tunnel now connecting their cells and nothing but time on their hands, Faria begins to teach Dante's history, science, philosophy, and languages, turning him into a well-educated man. Faria also bequeaths to Dante's a treasure of vast wealth hidden on the uninhabited island of Monte Cristo and tells him how to find it should he ever escape. Knowing that vengeance could consume and destroy Dantes, the Abbe Faria teaches him a final lesson before he dies, to not deny the Lord's justice. Do not commit the crime for which you now serve the sentence. God said, vengeance is mine. I don't believe in God, Dantes responds. It doesn't matter. He believes in you. Dantes remains unconvinced. Upon the death of Faria, Dantes devises a clever plan by hiding himself in the death shroud of Faria and is finally able to escape his 14 years of torment from the Chateau d'If. After securing the treasure, he becomes extremely wealthy and assumes a new identity as the Count of Monte Cristo. For the evil men who conspired against him, he devises an elaborate plan of revenge with a painful and prolonged punishment 
a just recompense for the fourteen years he barely survived in the dungeon to which they unjustly sent him. With precision, Dante sets in motion his plan, and his enemies suffer the punishment which he has carefully devised for each one of them. When we read the book or watch the movie version of The Count of Monte Cristo, there is something in us that wants to see justice served against those cruel and conspiring men who inflicted so much pain on an innocent man. There is a sense of fairness and desire in each of us that good must prevail over evil, that things lost must be restored, and that broken hearts must be mended. Until these things happen, there is an injustice gap that is hard for us to reconcile in our minds, even more so in our hearts, leaving us troubled and finding it difficult to move on. People try to reconcile this injustice gap in many ways, through revenge, justifying their anger and bitterness, or seeking legal redress and imposed consequences. We ultimately discover that the Lord's way is the only way for true and complete reconciliation. The heir of Dante's was not necessarily seeking redress and justice according to the law of the land and bringing devious facts to light with appropriate penalties for the guilty. But in letting his desire for justice turn to hatred and anger, self-pity, self-justification, and other disabling behaviors on the not-responsible list, he essentially descended to his enemy's level of ungodliness and used deception, lies, and fraud to entrap them all outside the lawful process just as they had done to him and just as the Abbe Faria had prophesied. By relying on the law of Moses, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, rather than on the law of the gospel, including forgiving and praying for one's enemies, Dantes imposed a life sentence of misery and bitterness on himself. In denying the Lord's justice for others, he unwittingly denied the Lord's mercy for himself and chose to serve the sentence that Christ had already served in his behalf. It robbed him of a life of happiness that could have been his but for the want of revenge. Having faith in Jesus Christ is to trust that because of his atoning sacrifice, he will correct all injustices. He will restore all things lost and mend all things broken, including hearts. He will make all things right, not leaving any detail unattended. Therefore, ye ought to say in your hearts, Let God judge between me and thee, and reward thee according to thy deeds. Like Edmund Dantes, many victims have been so cruelly injured, such as in abuse cases, with no apparent justice forthcoming, that they felt like the Lord was requiring the impossible to ask them to forgive. But as hard as forgiving may be in such situations, not forgiving is even harder over the long run because it puts a person on the disabling anti-responsibility list. Not forgiving is a synonym with blaming, anger, self-justifying, and self-pity, all things on the list. When Satan taps into any of these negative emotions, he begins exercising control over their life, even if they're right. One of the most difficult times to forgive is in the case of spouse abuse, with the anguish and pain of betrayal and cruelty. Now, there's an interesting and common pattern with abuse cases. The abuser nearly always blames the victim, 
just as Laman and Lemuel blamed Nephi for their abuse of him. To protect himself and his family, the Lord inspired Nephi to separate his family from his brothers and their wicked intentions. Let's assume that a woman who has been cruelly abused receives similar revelation, and she separates from her extremely abusive husband. Even though the abused woman is now free from the abusive environment, she is finding it hard to forgive him for the sustained and escalating cruelty. It just seems unfair to ask her to forgive his brutality when he seems to be unrepentant. It doesn't seem fair for her, the innocent one, to be suffering while he, the guilty one, appears to get off scot-free. Is there peace to be found without justice? Well, like Edmond Dantes, until the abused wife learns to forgive, she is also denying or not trusting in the justice of God and His ability to judge wisely. Justice, we read in the Guide to the Scriptures, is an eternal law that requires a penalty each time a law of God is broken. The sinner must pay the penalty if he does not repent. If he does repent, the Savior pays the penalty through the Atonement invoking mercy. If the former husband does not repent, he will pay the penalty. How sore you know not, how exquisite you know not, yea, how hard to bear you know not. She will know if he truly repents because his restitution will include humbly and sincerely asking for forgiveness and striving to make amends. Even though she may understand the law of justice, what she's feeling is the need for justice now. Elder Neil A. Maxwell wisely taught that faith in God includes faith in His purposes as well as in His timing. We cannot fully accept Him while rejecting His schedule. The gospel guarantees ultimate, not proximate, justice. Behold, mine eyes see and know all their works, and I have in reserve a swift judgment in the season thereof for them all. The law of justice and trusting in the Lord's timing allows her not to worry about justice anymore, but places judgments, judgment in God's hands. Behold what the scripture say, says, Man shall not smite, neither shall he judge, for judgment is mine, saith the Lord, and vengeance is mine also, and I will repay. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland shares this helpful insight. Please don't ask if it is fair. When it comes to our own sins, we don't ask for justice. What we plead for is mercy, and that is what we must be willing to give. Can we see the tragic irony of not granting to others what we need so badly ourselves? Those who have experienced permanent damage or prolonged suffering or loss from an offense face a far more difficult challenge in forgiving and turning justice over to the Lord. Hopefully, they can find comfort in something that the Prophet Joseph Smith taught. What can these misfortunes do? Nothing. All your losses will be made up to you in the resurrection, provided you continue faithful. Until the abused woman can turn justice over to the Lord, she will likely continue to experience feelings of anger, which is a form of negative devotion towards her abuser, and this traps her in a reoccurring nightmare. President George Albert Smith referred to this as cherishing an improper influence. Having hurt her so deeply, why would she allow him to continue victimizing her by haunting her thoughts? Hasn't she suffered enough already? 
Not forgiving her abuser allows him to mentally torment her over and over and over. Forgiving him doesn't set him free. It sets her free. Part of understanding forgiveness is to understand what it is not. Forgiving her abusive husband does not excuse or condone his cruelty. It doesn't mean forgetting his brutality. You can't unremember or erase a memory so traumatic. It doesn't mean that justice is being denied because mercy cannot rob justice. It doesn't erase the injury he has caused, but can begin to heal the wound and ease the pain. It doesn't mean trusting him again and giving him yet another chance to abuse her and the children. While forgiving is a commandment, trust has to be earned and evidenced by good behavior over time, which he clearly has not demonstrated. And it doesn't mean forgiveness of his sins. Only the Lord can do that based upon sincere repentance. Those are the things that it doesn't mean. What it does mean is to forgive his foolishness, even his stupidity, in succumbing to the impulses of the natural man, while hoping that he will yet yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean giving him another chance to abuse, but does mean giving him another chance at the plan of salvation. It also is also helpful if she understands that men are punished as much by their sins as for them. She then recognizes that her abuser has inflicted far more eternal damage upon himself than temporal damage upon her. And even in the present, his true happiness and joy diminish in inverse proportion to his increased wickedness, because wickedness never was happiness. He is to be pitied for the sorrowful and precarious situation he is in. Knowing that he is sinking in spiritual quicksand, might begin to change her desire for justice, which is already occurring, to a hope that he will repent before it's too late. With this understanding, she might even begin to pray for the one who has despitefully abused her. This Christ-like change in her heart helps her to forgive and brings about the healing she so desperately wants and deserves. The Savior knows exactly how to heal her because he precisely knows her pain, having lived it vicariously. In this scenario of the abused wife, we have two parties, the abusive husband and the victim wife, both of whom need divine help. Alma chapter 7 teaches us that the Savior suffered for both, for the sins of the man and for the anguish, the heartache, and the pain of the woman. To access the Savior's grace and the healing power of His Atonement, the Savior requires something from both of them. The husband's key to access the Lord's grace is repentance. If he doesn't repent, he cannot be forgiven by the Lord. Her key to access the Lord's grace and allow him to heal her is to forgive. Until she is able to forgive, she is choosing to suffer the anguish and pain which he has already suffered in her behalf. By not forgiving, she unwittingly denies his mercy and healing. In a sense, she fulfills the scripture, I, God, have suffered these things that they might not suffer, but if they would not repent or forgive, they must suffer even as I. In summary, being 100% responsible is accepting yourself as the person in control of your life. If others are at fault and need to change before further progress is made, 
then you are at their mercy and they are in control over the positive outcomes or desired results in your life. Agency and responsibility are inseparably connected. You cannot avoid responsibility without also diminishing agency. Mercy and justice are also inseparable. You cannot deny the Lord's justice without also impeding His mercy. Oh, how Satan loves to divide complementary principles and laugh at the resulting devastation. I invite each one of you to eliminate the anti-responsibility or anti-faith list from your life, even when you are right. It is an anti-happy. It is an anti-success list, even when you're right. It is not a list for the valiant sons and daughters of God who are seeking to become more like Him. It is one of Satan's foremost tools in controlling and destroying lives. The day a person eliminates the list from their life is the day they regain control over positive outcomes from that point on, and they begin moving forward in the light at an accelerated pace. I bear my certain witness of the name of Jesus Christ and the power and happiness that the fullness of His gospel affords us. He is the life and the light of the world. These principles that I've shared today are His. I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Being Accountable for Our Life Choices with thoughts from Sharon G. Samuelson and Lynn G. Robbins. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.